0: Welcome to the presentation. The title is "Strategies and Best Practices to Reduce the Risk of Surgical Site Infections and Bloodstream Infections." My name is Prinu Gabriel, and I'm the manager for infection prevention. And I've been in infection prevention for the past 20 years. I work for an acute care hospital, and along with me is another faculty, Kathleen Cohort, and she is a big infection prevention consultant.
1: This slide shows the faculty disclosures.
0: Program information. This education is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, and HMP Global Company. It is supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare Medical Solutions Division.
1: The learning objectives. So
0: this session will be looking into the financial and clinical burden of surgical site infection and bloodstream infections. We will also review the strategies and best practices to reduce the risk of surgical site infections and bloodstream infections, mostly in the perioperative period and the intensive care unit. We will also discuss the guidelines and recommended practices to support the strategies to reduce these risks, and the last would be the topic on patient decolonization with nasal povidone iodine, which is the best practice to reduce risk for patients in the perioperative and ICU
1: units. So
0: going into the presentation, strategies and best practices to reduce the risk of SSIs and BSIs in the perioperative period and in the intensive care unit. So let's look into what is a hospital-acquired infection. So a hospital-acquired infection that develops as a result of medical care, and this can occur in a hospital, in an outpatient surgery center, in a nursing home, in a rehab facility, or while receiving any kind of care, like wound care services. For an infection to occur, the bacteria must enter the body and it can enter through many ways. It can be through a wound, a device such as catheter, or through some surgical interventions. Healthcare-associated infections are complications of healthcare, and they are linked with high morbidity and mortality. Each year, about 1 in 25 U.S. patients are diagnosed with at least one infection that is related to their hospital care. Additionally, these infections are often caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and they sometimes lead to death. So this slide shows the common types of hospital-acquired infection. They're just not limited, but these are the most common types. So we have catheter-associated urinary tract infection, surgical site infection, line associated bloodstream infection, and then hospital-acquired pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia. Okay, let's look into the impacts of HEI. Healthcare-associated infections are common and complicating. Most of them can be prevented. Each day, around one out of 25 patients in the US contracts an HAI. These infections can significantly delay recovery, increase the hospital stay, expense of hospital stay, and also result in death. Of the approximately 2 million American patients who acquire an HAI, an estimated 90,000 will die. That's a significant number. Selective HAIs can be reduced as much as 70% with the help of proper patient safety interventions. The cost of a single case can range from $1,000 to nearly $50,000, depending on the type of infection. The direct cost of HAIs to hospital is estimated to be about $28 billion to $45 billion. And all of the references
1: to these uh, data are at the bottom of each slide.
0: So let's look into surgical site infection. So this is the most common infection. It's also a costly HEI. Annually, up to 300,000 SSIs occur in the hospital in the US. SSI occurs up to 2% to 5% of patients that undergo surgery. It increases the length of stay to up to 9.7 days. And the annual cost is from 3.5 billion to 10 billion. And the most important thing is with the literature, about 60% of these SSIs can be prevented. So let's look into central line associated bloodstream infections. An estimated 250,000 bloodstream infections occur annually. And the CLABSI C rate in the intensive care unit is estimated to be 0.8 per 1,000 central line days. The longer the central line days, the higher is the risk for a bloodstream infection. So the rates of CLABSI C associated with PIC lines are very similar to the conventional central venous catheters, which includes dialysis catheters. The central line associated bloodstream infections were found to be the most costly HAI, and they're usually about 45,000, and the range is from 30,000 to 65,000. And central line associated bloodstream infection, about 65 to 70% of them can be prevented with the current evidence-based interventions. Let's talk about the impacts of COVID-19 on clf So the data comes from uh, CDC, the National Healthcare Safety Network, and this was published in Infection Control and Epidemiology this year. So they compared the quarter three of 2020 to quarter three of 2019. There were about 4,460 CLABSIs that were reported in 2020, and this is a 53% increase in comparison to the number of events that were reported from the same hospital, same location in 2019. So COVID-19 did definitely make an impact on the hospital-acquired infections. We do see an increase in biopsies, an increase in ventilator-associated pneumonia, and also an increase with other multi-drug-resistant organisms, which are secondary infections to COVID-19 pneumonia. And the impact of COVID-19 is as a result of patients being very ill, and also the large volume of patients influx in hospitals causing lack of hospital beds. The impacts of COVID-19 on HAI also depends upon the large influx of patients that the hospitals have seen, and also the staff to patient ratio. So these have negatively impacted And we are seeing an increase with hospital-acquired infection during this pandemic. So let's talk about HAI incidence and the clinical burden. The risks that put the patients for a surgical site infection or any kind of hospital-acquired infection is the age, the severity of the illness, invasive procedures that they have to have in the hospital stay, and also invasive devices, which could be urinary catheter or a central line and once when a patient gets an hai the negative outcomes are increase in the length of stay delayed recovery and also unintended negative consequences like mortality literature shows that mortality was substantially higher for patients with hai at baseline of 9.7 and 23.2% at 30 and 70 days, in comparison with those without HAI, which is 2.8% and 4.4% at 30 and 90 days. So this is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the CMS. So the CMS program, which is the hospital value-based purchasing benchmark Requires all hospitals to report um, HAIs. And HAI is part of the total performance score. And this slide shows under the category of safety, the HAIs that are required by the hospitals to report to CMS. And out of the total performance score, the HAIs weigh up to 25%. So when the hospitals perform poorly, they lose money. So this is a pay a performance benchmark. So let's look into some of the strategies and best practices to reduce surgical site infection. So the surgical site infection bundle, which we have two um, nice articles that came out last year in 2020 in the American Journal of Infection Control. One is specific to colon and the other one is for abdominal hysterectomy. The bundle is divided into four phases of the patient's journey, starting from the uh, patient assessment, which is an appointment prior to the surgery where the patients are assessed, then the pre-op phase, inter-op phase, and the post-op phase, which includes the PACU and the inpatient unit. So in the patient assessment, which is usually a pre-op appointment that the patients come prior to their surgery, few days prior to their surgery, The patients are um, shared the need for chlorexidine shower, 4%. The night before and the day of surgery, they've given the education. The diagnostic testing is completed for the hemoglobin A1c and for glucose. And this is done for all patients with and without diabetes. And also, if there is a bowel prep, if it's ordered by the physician, education is provided on that. And then education to the patients to reiterate, no surgical site shaving. We don't want patients to do any kind of shaving at home because this could cause abrasions in the skin and can increase the risk for a surgical site infection. MRSA screening and decolonization is performed. And this is a recommendation from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. If you have your surgical site infections, if you see more than 50% being caused by MRSAs, then definitely MRSA screening and decolonization should be considered pre-op. Education is also provided on nutrition, protein supplement, and carbohydrate loading as appropriate with the ERAS protocol, which is the enhanced recovery after surgery, glucose management for patients with diabetes, education on smoking cessation, and then also good hygiene education and education on other surgery-related information. In the preoperative phase, we do the third CHD bathing with wipes. Also, the skin and nasal decolonization is completed prior to surgery. Skin assessment is performed. Normothermia is recommended and the range is 36 to 38 degrees Celsius. And this can be done using body-warming desired devices. If the normothermia is not maintained and the patient is hypothermic, it can have negative consequences of restricting oxygenation and also causing vasoconstruction of the tissues, and that could increase the risk for a surgical site infection. Glycemic management is very important to maintain the blood glucose level less than 200, and this is for all patients, both diabetic and non-diabetic, and antibiotic prophylaxis to choose the appropriate antibiotic and also to make sure that it's a bait-based dosing. Hair removal with electrical clippers and not shaving. Again, shaving can cause abrasions in the skin, increases the risk for bacteria to enter the skin and lead to a surgical site infection. Moving on to the interoperative phase, this is in the OR is to limit traffic of how many people are going in and out of the OR suite. Again, to continue to maintain normothermia on the patient, to do skin prep with chlorhexidine and to make sure to follow the manufacturer's dry, dry time. And for abdominal hysterectomy, it is an ACOG recommendation, which is from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They recommend prepping the vagina with CHG. Antibiotic prophylaxis is given within an hour and redosing is based on the antibiotic used and also the length of surgery. The use of wound protector when indicated, glove and gown change prior to closure, using a separate closure tray and to use the appropriate dressing. I want to point out some of the initiatives over here with the glove and gown change and separate closure tray These were initiatives that were used with the Mayo Clinic when they conducted a study in 2011, and they did see a 50% reduction in their colon SSI's. In the post-operative phase, um, maintaining the glucose levels, glycemic control, again, less than 200, maintain the normal thermia, the temperature, and also introducing post-op CHD bathing to continue CHD bathing after the operation, not just doing it pre-op, but also to continue it post-op. And this was also one of the initiatives that, that was included in the Mayo Clinic study. An education on wound care, how to take care of the wound once when the patients are discharged home, and to follow up with the patient
1: with the phone call after discharge. So let's switch gears to CLABSI.
0: So, what is a CLABSI? And this definition is from CDC. It's a central line associated bloodstream infection in a patient where the central line is in place for greater than two days. And the central line was in place the date of the event or the date before. And the date of the event is usually the day that the blood culture was drawn. CLABSIs can be prevented through proper insertion technique and management of the central line. And these techniques are well addressed by the CDC Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee, the HICPAC. So, what is a central line? It's a catheter that terminates at or close to the heart or is in one of the great vessels. And the vessels are indicated here. And this is also from the CDC CLABC criteria. and the different types of central line. So the permanent central line is the tunnel catheters, including the tunnel dialysis catheters, implanted catheters, which includes the ports, and then the temporary central line is the non tunneled and non-implanted catheter. The umbilical catheter is often used in neonates and that is included in central line.
1: So let's look into the
0: strategies and best practices And we're gonna talk a little bit about the C bundle. So we'll start off with the insertion. For the insertion to follow the checklist, to use maximum barrier, to do the timeout protocol, and all the persons performing or assisting with the procedure to make sure they perform proper hand hygiene. The procedure site is prepped with 2% chlorexidine or alcohol solution and allowed to dry. Large body drape is being used to cover the patient to make sure that sterile gloves is used and all the proper PPE, the hat, mask, and sterile gown worn by all the personnel that is assisting with the procedure. Sterile field to be maintained after the dressing and also the CHD impregnated disc is applied and the dressing is dated appropriately. Catheter equipment to be used along with the dressing. We also need to make sure that the orders are in place and the maintenance order set is in place. So the dressing changes and the flushings are done appropriately. I can't stress this enough to follow and to make sure that meticulous hand hygiene is being performed before care, before accessing the line and when moving from contaminated site to clean site and
1: after each care.
0: Continuing with the strategies and other best practices in the C bundle is to review the line necessary on a daily basis. Every patient with the central line, they need to be assessed on a daily basis to make sure they still meet the indications for the central line. And if they don't, then definitely orders need to be placed to discontinue the central line. Also to continue daily CHG bathing, and this is part of the recommendation in the guidelines for prevention of intravascular catheter-related infections in 2011 by CDC. So this reduces the skin bio burden and it reduces the risk for a bloodstream infection. Weekly dressing changes to be completed and documented. And then all the healthcare personnel should follow the tubing and injection cap change as per the hospital policy, use of alcohol port protectors and compliance with the proper scrubbing of the hub, and to avoid unnecessary disconnection of the line during infusions. And this is a big thing to discourage line draws for blood cultures. The blood cultures that are drawn from line the literature shows that's a high risk for contamination. Other CLABSI initiatives would be to look into having a dedicated vascular access team. If a team as such is created, it would definitely make a difference. So this would be a competent team that would be responsible for all the lines housewide. They will be responsible for the insertion, for the assessment of the patient, whether they really need a PICC line or a CVC. They will also be responsible for the maintenance, including the weekly and as needed dressing changes. When we do analysis on C infections, often it shows that the infections occur past five days after the patient has had the central line. So when you see infections that occur past five days, it's mostly associated with the maintenance. And that's why a dedicated vascular access team in place could really make the difference because it will be a competent team that will be handling all the vascular access needs, including dressing changes, and also insertion and removal of the line. So other C initiatives, Each hospital should make sure to have a complete sterile package dressing change kit readily available. And the most important thing is to keep all the items that are needed included in the packaged kit. So this will prevent healthcare workers to make trips back and forth to get supplies. You wanna make sure that you maintain the sterile field while the dressing change is being completed. This is another initiative that some hospitals are looking into to have unit champions or unit team members that are designated to do the daily line assessment to see the patient meets the indication for the line, and also to do audits on appropriate line, accessing, flushing, and also to review the blood culture orders. whether the blood cultures orders are needed? Is there any source of infection? Do other cultures need to be ordered along with the blood cultures?
1: So this is some of the central line um,
0: education that is required for all healthcare workers and bedside nurses. Recognition of the line, when is it actually classified as a central venous catheter, to know what the appropriate indications are for the central venous catheter, education on the line maintenance, which includes the dressing change, the line documentation in the electronic health record, IV tubing guidelines, when the IV tubing has to be changed to follow the policy of the hospital, use of disinfecting caps, which is the alcohol port protectors, use of injection caps, and then also education on the flushing techniques, sequence, and the frequency.
1: I can't stress this enough, the
0: most important practice is performing meticulous hand hygiene. And these five moments of hand hygiene is from the World Health Organization. To perform hand hygiene before touching a patient, before a clean or aseptic procedure, after body fluid exposure risk, after touching the patient, and after touching the patient's surroundings. It is very important to maintain aseptic technique when you're taking care of the patient, especially when you're doing a dressing change or accessing the central line, and following the manufacturer's instruction for use for all devices. Most importantly, to also follow the proper cleaning, disinfection, and sterilization processes as per the manufacturer recommendation with devices um, that can be reprocessed. So if there is a device, the manufacturer recommendation is single use, it has to be discarded. And for the devices that has to be reprocessed, it is very important to follow the cleaning and sterilization guideline for the manufacturer. So this
1: concludes
0: this part of the presentation. And the next half of the presentation would be by Kathleen Kohut. And the title would be, what should we do and where do we start?
2: Thank you, Prinew. I'm Kathleen Kohut. I'm an infection preventionist, and I really appreciate all that valuable information that Prenu gave us as a foundation for HAI reduction strategies. And, and now my task is to talk about what we should do and, and where do we even start with all this information. And so I thought I would start with talking about what we actually know and then go from there. And so let's start with the human microbiome or the human body. What's very interesting to me about that is that skin can contain over 1 million bacteria per square centimeter. And if that isn't enough, then uh, think about the fact that there are 37 trillion human cells and a hundred trillion microbial cells that like to live on the body. And we're all very happy with all these trillions, zillions of cells. Problem is that some organisms that, for example, an obvious one is organisms that live in the groin, if they end up in a central line then can cause harm to the patient. And so it's important for us to reduce the number of microorganisms so that we can reduce the risk of infection. We also know that devices increase the risk of HAIs and uh, we know that pneumonias can occur in the hospital acute care settings But if a patient has endotracheal tube and is on a ventilator, uh, the risk of a pneumonia increases significantly. That's true of a BSI versus a CLABSI and a UTI versus a CAUTI as well. So managing devices is an important strategy for reducing HAIs. We can't predict who's going to get an infection because each patient has a unique immune system the patient themselves come to us with different risk factors. Hospitalization is unique for each patient. They could be there for a day or 30 days. And the longer that a patient is in the hospital, we know that that's a risk for an HAI. Bacteria have different levels of virulence. and. In addition, they could be biofilm formers, and that can be very important, particularly in uh, the case of a CLABSI. So all of these variabilities can make HAI reduction strategies very complex. Patient outcomes, therefore, are optimized by standardizing all the evidence-based practice that we know that's designed to reduce HAIs and the risk that's inherent with these patients And and that just translates into bundles. And we'll talk about bundles a lot uh, through the rest of the presentation. The guidelines that drive our practice in critical care are numerous, and we're gonna focus on the ones related to collapses in particular. The CDC LASH published their guideline in 2011, and they refresh it from time to time. And the Shea Society for Healthcare Epidemiology is also a very uh, well-respected guideline and that was uh, last published in 2014. So you can see that even though these guidelines were published long ago, the foundations that they've laid for us have been invaluable in helping us with CLABSI reductions. All organizations agree with the original CDC statement from 2011 that says that using bundles, which are again, evidence-based practices can drive and sustain change. So very important to develop bundles based on these important guidelines. What I consider to be important to understand is that I believe that the increase in HAIs is due to the COVID chaos. I define COVID chaos as the nurse at the bedside that now is taking care of patients that they don't know how this disease is transmitted yet uh, early in the pandemic process. There's no PPE to wear to protect themselves or very little. So that was a huge stressor. And there were so many stressors at the bedside that standardization of care sort of went by the wayside just to be in survival mode. And that's not a blame, that's just a a fact of life as we were managing this very uh, significant pandemic event. Developing bundles is an important part of any HAI reduction strategy and then monitoring those bundles is crucial. The advantage of doing monitoring is that it clarifies expectation to the staff regarding current practice. That is so important, and actually, the bundles become a teaching tool to let staff know what it is that is evidence-based practice and what your organization is going to be focused on in order to reduce the HAI. Uh, and in this case, it would be Clapses. It also provides data regarding the compliance for that change that you're trying to make. And uh, that's important to give that compliance feedback to the bedside nurses so they can understand the hard work that they're doing and that it's actually making a difference. So the data that you generate from the process measurements is really to identify the opportunities for improvement. Once the data is published, measure and compare performance over time and Create a Hawthorne effect, and the Hawthorne effect means to me that when I have used auditing for C reduction, the nurses understood what we were going to look for, and that we were going to do this on a regular basis because it was an important focus for the organization. And therefore, she was able to make sure that she was complying with all of the criteria of the bundle, uh, so that she could contribute to. Uh, the success of the C reductions. And therefore they knew that somebody was gonna come by and check on them and they were gonna be ready. This is an example of a central line bundle auditing result. Um, And you can see that in this particular organization, they used the clinical indication for the line, the dated dressing and tubing, was the device secured, was CHG present, were caps present on all the ports and was the dressing drying intact at the time of observation? And you can see the results of this auditing process. And if you were to use a greater than 90% compliance threshold, you can see that there's a lot of work to be done in this organization related to individual criteria of the bundle. And as an organization, you could decide to look at maybe one or two things in the next month prior to the next auditing to see if you can create some change that can be sustained over time. Let's look at the guidelines that drive our practice related to surgical site infections. First of all, it needs to be understood that there are multiple variables that may contribute to surgical site infections. This is very complex. The process from the time the patient is in the physician's office deciding to have that surgical procedure all the way until they're discharged from the hospital can contribute to a surgical site infection. And so it's important to understand what that risk looks like. Typically, the left side of the screen demonstrates this equation, uh, which is the dose of bacteria times the virulence of the bacteria over the resistance of the host really helps to define what the risk of an SSI is. And so inherently, there are risks in preparing the patient for that surgical procedure. There are risks involved with how the staff prepare, what is their attire, their hand hygiene practices, uh, how they perform their surgical scrubs. What the surgical technique is itself during the procedure, aseptic technique is clearly one of those important hospital environmental uh, risks, as well as OR traffic, OR surfaces, and the ventilation uh, that is in the room. So there are so many things to consider with SSI strategies and this process variability can truly negatively impact the success of prevention strategies. The CDC has defined reduction core strategies not only in 2017 SSI prevention guideline, but the SHEA has also uh, updated theirs, and that was last done in 2014. The definition of a perioperative bundle, according to the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, is defined as a structured way of improving the process of care and patient outcomes. So they really talk about having just a small set of evidence-based practices that you might put into place. So starting small with maybe three to five that you can ensure that you're going to perform collectively and reliably. And when that is able to be done, hardwired if you will, it has been proven to improve patient outcomes. So really what your goal is, is to provide the same care for every single patient, every single time. What's important to understand about surgical procedures though, is that the bundles have to be very specific to the service lines. There are many initiatives that can be applied to all procedures, such as antibiotic prophylaxis, surgical technique, aseptic technique, and they can be standardized across the spectrum. However, for example, even antibiotic prophylaxis is not the same from one procedure to another. And colon surgeries is a good example where there are different types of prophylaxis for colon procedures than for uh, joint procedures. So they need to be tailored to the uniqueness of the procedure. And the example is a comb bundle uh, would not address the risks of a total joint program. Organisms can also direct prevention strategies. And that is really important to consider. And the infection preventionists do collect this data. And it's important to publish from time to time so that you can see what organisms are actually causing your HAIs in general and surgical procedures uh, specifically one thing that I always like to do is point out and categorize these causative organisms as skin versus enteric. And that's important because the origin of skin organisms is very different than where enteric organisms tend to come from. And your prevention strategies will look very differently accordingly. Surgical bundle process data, again, needs to be measured, just like in the example I gave you with CLABSIs, and for some of the very same reasons. It can define success for the teams that are working hard to create this change. It clarifies the expectations of what the organization will be focusing on and what will be different going forward, and then provide that quantitative data for review and comparison. If anybody knows surgeons, you know that they're very data driven and uh, creating this important data is so important to be able to see where your progress lies and where your focus needs to be going forward. SSI strategy implementation by the Whack-A-Mole approach is a little bit different. That is when you come up with a bundle, but you really don't hardwire it and you really don't measure it over time. uh, You're gonna start to see practices drift. People are gonna forget what they were supposed to do. And then you're gonna see your surgical site infections come back time and time again. And this can be a very, very frustrating way uh, to conduct your SSI reduction strategies. Your data may look like something like this graph from year to year, where, uh, although this is just a raw number and it's just an example, it demonstrates variability over time with no appreciable uh, sustained improvement. Uh, There's no beautiful uh, downward trend here. You're up and down and up and down from year to year. That's a little different than this other graph that, although this isn't surgical site infections, this is a CAUTI SIR. Graph that I just wanted to show the difference that when you are making a change as this organization did by third quarter 19, they really sustained with only one exception, a zero CAUTI rate for a very long time, more than a year. But then unfortunately COVID hit and they started to see a drift again. Uh, so their goal is to, when the madness ends, they want to get back to a standardized approach for measuring CAUTI reduction strategies. Nasal decolonization has become a very important part of surgical site infection reduction strategies. So I want to walk through this with you. And the reason that it is important is because we've, began to understood that uh, the nose is a reservoir for Staph aureus, and Staph aureus continues to be a very important organism to manage as it causes so many uh, healthcare-acquired infections in general. And specifically surgical site infections. What we know is that 30% of the population carry Staph aureus in their nares. And then another 30% of the population carry it in their nares intermittently, which is very interesting, as well as the fact that 30% of the population never carries Staph aureus in their noses. And so who knows why one person likes Staph aureus and the other one doesn't. And again, most of the time, this doesn't cause harm. What we also have learned from Dr. Trish Pearl and her publication in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2002 is that surgical site infections have now been linked to the patient themselves so that when a patient in this study had a surgical site infection, they genotyped that causative organism back to the patient's own organisms that were being harbored in their nares. And they identified that the Staph aureus in that patient's nares was the exact same uh, organism that caused their surgical site infection 80% of the time. So this endogenous source of organisms is very important to manage to reduce surgical site infections. So to defend nasal decolonization further, we have to understand that the anterior nares is a a very unique anatomical niche uh, that loves Staph aureus. And it has its own unique physiology and bacterial ecosystem. And as I pointed out before, Staph aureus is still a leading cause in CLABSI and and surgical site infections in acute care facilities. And so therefore it should be a very important part of any uh, HAI reduction strategy. Once again, we want to be able to see what our data is in our facilities and the infection preventionist can provide this for you. If you have a lot of MRSA, if you have a significant amount of Staph aureus that is causing your healthcare acquired infections, that is definitely a motivation to decolonize the nares. And if you look at this particular organization, and their causative organisms in 2018, you perhaps had 13 HAIs that you could have prevented had uh, decolonization strategies been in place. The CLABSI reduction guidelines for intensive care units provided by the CDC does state that implementing source control strategies is an important one in order to reduce bloodstream infections. For surgical procedures, nasal carriage of staph is also considered a major risk factor for surgical site infections. Now, And that is specifically pointed out in much of the literature that has come out since Dr. Pearl first published. And that is true in orthopedic procedures, cardiothoracic procedures, general procedures and neuro procedures, and particularly those that use implants. Therefore, nasal decolonization has been around for a long time and muparicin has been historically the drug of choice, if you will, to decolonize the nares. The problem with using muparicin that we have begun to realize over time is that there are process issues, compliance burdens, and some antibiotic resistance that has been reported and because it can be complicated to get somebody to decolonize their nares preoperatively it can result in a lot of process variability so if you think about it when a patient decolonizes their nares because they are mrsa and or staph aureus positive then you're asking somebody to fill a prescription for the mupirocin you're asking them to decolonize their nares or apply the muparicin twice a day uh, for five days before their surgical procedure. And we know that patients aren't always very compliant with their preoperative instructions. And so there is a lot of variability as to whether that patient was compliant before they come in to have their surgical procedure. Dr. Phillips published in the Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology Journal in 2014, establishing that nuparicin and a 5% nasal proton iodine solution are comparable in decolonizing the nose preoperatively. This is an investigator initiated prospective trial that compared SSI's post arthroplasty and spinal fusion All patients were given 2% CHG bathing cloths, and then they were randomized to a nasal proton iodine solution or the five-day treatment of uh, nasal muparicin ointment. And the conclusion of this important study is that overall SSI rates were actually lower using the proton iodine solution, and that could very well be because of some of those compliance variability issues that I spoke of earlier. In addition, reduction in SSIs caused by staph aureus were noted in the study, and that 5% nasal probadone iodine is now considered an alternative comparison as an approach to reducing SSIs. The advantages of this probidone iodine is that resistance has not been shown because it's an antiseptic, not an antibiotic, and therefore can support antibiotics stewardship programs. It's broad spectrum. It's easy to implement in the pre-op area. And there's no need to change current protocols, for example, MRSA screening preoperatively, which you still wanna do because of antibiotic selection if the patient is MRSA positive. You can directly observe the application uh, to ensure compliance, whether you have the patient do it themselves or that nurse at the bedside. And there is again, uh, demonstrated efficacy in reducing surgical site infections with the 5% probitone iodine solution. Limitations are few, but there is a small number of patients that may be uh, allergic to iodine. And we manage that in our surgical preps as well. And then it reduces the bacteria, but doesn't completely eradicate it. The guidelines and recommendations that have come out from the World Health Organization, as well as the 2017 Wisconsin Division of Public Health Supplemental Guidance for the Prevention of SSIs, talks about using Reparison and the Wisconsin uh, guideline even talks about using the alternative of proton iodine uh, solutions to be used preoperatively as an SSI reduction strategy. In addition, the CDC core strategies for source control of high-risk patients during high-risk procedures also recommends using iotivores as an alternative to intranasal mupirocin. Globally, the clinical guidelines for nasal decolonization have consensus on the following. First of all, preoperative bathing, at least the night before and the operative day, is uh, widely considered standard of care, particularly in high risk procedures such as cardiothoracic, orthopedic, and neurosurgery procedures. Nasal decolonization is also a consensus amongst the majority of the guidelines, screening for MRSA and treating with muparicin um, for high-risk surgical procedures. In 2019, CDC updated their guidance to use an intranasal mupirocin or probidone iodine of 5% or above, as well as CHG soap or wipes for high-risk surgical patients, ICU patients, and non-ICU patients with CBC or midline catheters. In addition, in 2021, in alignment with the CDC, AORN updated their guidelines to include consideration of nasal decolonization for these high-risk surgical patients. So how do you create a decolonization bundle? Well, let's start with your organisms, right? This graph on the left simply displays causative organisms over time. And again, you can see that Staph aureus and MRSA are significant organisms for this organization, which then supports a decolonization program. In the intensive care unit, you might develop a decolonization program based on several things. So first is you're gonna define the population or you're gonna standardize to every procedure. And that's a decision that each organization needs to make. Uh, The second thing is to screen for MRSA and staph aureus or simply choose high-risk populations, such as nursing home and dialysis patients or standardize to all patients. And this is especially true in California where there is uh, mandates for this to occur. Then you want to decontaminate the nares daily and provide CHG bathing daily in order to reduce the risk of an MRSA and or staff or is healthcare acquired infection. This is the process standardization that occurs when you create an ICU bundle. For a surgical pre-op protocol, you're going to start by screening for MRSA because you might choose a different antibiotic prophylaxis based on the results. If a patient is obviously MRSA positive, it's likely you're going to choose vancomycin. Then you're gonna begin at home with a CHG bathing protocol for those patients. And then when they come into the hospital, decontaminate the nares prior to the surgical procedure with a defined population or standardized to every procedure. It's really much easier for those bedside nurses in the pre-op area if you standardize to every procedure and definitely standardize to all of the surgeons for all surgical procedures. It's very difficult if you don't have consensus among these surgeons to be on board with this decolonization process because it's hard to know that Dr. A does it this way and Dr. B does it that way. And there is inherent variability to that that then can drive noncompliance. Last, you want to provide a CHG bathing for that patient just prior to the surgical procedure. And that really does define a very simple way to create a pre-op bundle to reduce surgical site infections. this process standardization via this bundle is one part of a larger bundle that you may choose to use in all of your surgical site prevention strategies. Frequently people don't know what to decolonize first, the nose or the toes. And the answer is nose before toes. And the reason is that you want to decolonize the nose prior to the body because the nose is an active source of contamination. So every time somebody breathes, they're expelling Staph aureus onto their body. And under normal circumstances, that's not an issue. But when you're trying to decontaminate the patient, then you've got to decontaminate the source first. And after that active source of staph aureus is removed, then you can apply the CHG and provide clean linens for the patients. So they're truly optimized and decolonized prior to going to the operating room so that that surgical prep that you apply to the patient has the best chance of working as well as it can um, to protect the patient from a surgical site infection. So in summary, reducing the risk of CLABSI's and SSI's is really important to be considering because they're common and they're costly, uh, particularly CLABSI's and surgical site infections. The patient as a host is an important consideration for CLABSI and surgical site infection risk. And we've seen that just from understanding the bio burden and the colonization that occurs on every human being and how that needs to be managed in order to prevent CLABSIs and surgical site infections. Controlling variables, uh, such as reducing that bacterial load then, is an important way to reduce clabsies and SSIs. And using the bundled approach by standardizing the care that you can provide to your patients to improve your outcomes by giving that patient the same care every single time is the goal in using bundles as an approach to reduce the risk of CLABSIs and surgical site infections in your patient populations. And with that, that includes this presentation, and thank you very much for your time and attention.